I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The following program is presented by the Nerdy Show Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdy Show programming is made possible by a comic shop, Orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination and with the generous support of listeners like you. To learn how you can support this and other fine geek programming, visit nerdyshow.com. Welcome to Nerdy Show, a weekly podcast dedicated to every facet of nerddom, from comics and video games to science and technology. If it's geeky, we've got it covered. Hi, I'm Cap. I'm Brian. I'm Jess. And with us is a guest host, Matt D. Wilson, author of the books Supervillain Handbook, Supervillain Field Manual, and the upcoming Supervillain Autobiography, Supreme Villainy. He's also the writer of the comic Copernicus Jones, Robot Detective, and co-host of everyone's favorite comics podcast, War Rocket Ajax. Matt D. Wilson, how you doing? I'm good. I feel like there there's some kind of pre-prescribed response to how you do, and I've been conditioned by Big Cass and Enzo Amore of WWE to to answer <laughs> how you doing in a certain way. So it's, I don't know what to do, but uh, I am very happy to be here because I am a big fan of the Nerdy Show. So thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for being a dirty rotten flatterer. Matt's on here not just to join us in, in a fun, wonderful, hand-holding experience of sharing in our nerdiness here on Nerdy Show, but also to talk about his upcoming comic, Everything Will Be Okay, with artist Rodrigo Vargas. Uh, it's a five-issue limited series currently on the tail end of a Kickstarter campaign, and we're going to talk about that later. First and foremost, well, we're all going to share in the magic and math of science fantasy right now. This is a listener-requested topic from Dr. Talos. He's doubled down on this, so it's a 30-minute discussion at least. He says, I'm a huge fan of science fantasy, a genre that straddles the area between science fiction and fantasy but manages to maintain its own identity. How huge a fan am I? Like Brian from Flame On, I travel to DragonCon for a single day specifically to see Gene Wolfe give a talk. He's a seminal author who has written several works of science fantasy. I'd like to hear from various nerdy show Illuminati about their favorite science fantasy, whether it's books, movies like Star Wars, games like Final Fantasy or Shadowrun, or comics like Doctor Stranger, whatever. So thank you, Dr. Talos. We're going to do exactly that. So Dr. Talos is an amazing name, I have to say. As a fan of Gene Wolfe, I realized right away that he was referencing a character in Book of the New Sun, which is probably one of Gene Wolfe's most well-known works. I, and, well, not well-known enough that I got that reference at all. No, and no, it's all right. I've, I've seen this dude's name for years. <laughs> well, I think I have too, and it didn't ring a bell until I put the Gene Wolfe right next to it, and then, oh, the neurons fired. But what's interesting about Book of the New Sun and, and the extension is Book of the Long Sun, Book of the Short Sun, the whole work is, I would say, safely in the science fantasy realm because... It's based in a far distant future where the Earth is about to be overtaken by the sun. That is a real thing in our distant future. True. And magical elements, things that are sort of uh, inexplicable are happening. 
and you're not sure, and deliberately so, if it's magic, spirit, uh, religious, or technology that we just don't understand. Kind of the whole Arthur C. Clarke thing that uh, most recently I saw in Breath of the Wild with the Guardians. Yeah, and Zelda, the, uh, the, the new Zelda, yeah. With the new Zelda, when the Sheikah's uh, machinery comes to life and it just looks like it's, it's sort of magical creatures, but really it's just old technology. So that's the intersection I think of when I think of science fantasy, but I know the definition is fairly large, right? Well, you could, I mean, I thought it was straightforward uh, <laughs> until I started looking into some, just some notes for this episode and, and then found that, that really science fantasy is extraordinarily ill-defined <laughs> And depending on who you ask, it, it mostly just means, well, if you're not hard science enough and if you're not hard fantasy enough, well, uh, too bad, sucker, because you science fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> and that was kind of my my thought, too, like as I was reading your notes and as I was walking today and trying to think of like what I would bring up. And I was like, is it is science fantasy like the the books and shows that I find are not portraying science accurately? And it's like, oh, OK, now it's just like science fantasy or magic or um, but I was like pre previously thinking it's something like A Wrinkle in Time, which was like one of my favorite books Ditto. Um, when I was a kid, um, which does kind of blend that pretty nicely. Well, I, I feel like there are what there's a very wide spectrum of what science fantasy can be. And I feel like there could probably be a wide swath of disagreement about <laughs> where on that spectrum you draw the line. Because the two examples I always see of science fantasy are Star Wars, which is largely a sci-fi space opera with some religious slash magic stuff added in in the form of the Force. And then the other end is Edgar Rice Burroughs, Princess of Mars, big fantasy stuff hap that just happens to be happening on another planet with aliens but they're doing kind of like classic fantasy stories or even like masters of the universe would fall into yeah absolutely science fantasy so like that's a wide range of people flying spaceships and shooting lasers at each other <laughs> and <laughs> people riding on actual dragons and but they happen to be on another planet <laughs> yeah but they just they just happen to be on another planet right it's such a wide genre because you can have, you know, just sci-fi sci with a couple fantasy elements, or you can have fantasy with a couple sci-fi elements. And there are such purists <laughs> who are adherents to those genres that any addition makes it this third thing, which is science fantasy. Yeah. And what really got me today was I was reading through Wikipedia and <laughs> apparently Star Trek gets labeled science fantasy due to unexplained elements like the Q. And I would contest at that moment, my immediate thought was, oh, well, but what about Arthur C. Clarke's quote that Brian already mentioned, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Obviously, that's the answer. But in 2006, Clarke wrote a short essay celebrating 40 years of Star Trek where he conceded that genuine science fiction should describe things that could happen according to present knowledge. I just don't think that's, I mean, I love R.C. Clarke. Do not get me wrong, people. But I just think that's too limiting. I mean, you look at a show or a, a book series like The Expanse, and they're doing everything they can to be as rigorous and scientific and all that. But they're dealing with a thing that we can't know about, which is alien life, other than our own projections of, of what we have as life around us. 
So like the expanse isn't science fiction then? Like that that's that just can't So a faster than light drive is science fantasy, right. not science fiction. Right. That's what they're saying, or that's what he's kind of implying with all this. So uh, I realized something as we're talking about this. Science fantasy, to me, is the gateway drug to fantasy. Because <laughs> I was a Asimov, Clark, Herbert, which Dune definitely drags more into that type science fantasy, I would say. But like I was starting at the sci-fi default, and I did not care about fantasy whatsoever. If you had a fucking dragon or a sword, <laughs> I didn't want to have anything or a, a magic, nothing. I wanted nothing to do with it. However, <laughs> I honestly think it was Gene Wolfe and maybe a little bit of Frank Herbert somewhat that sort of started bridging me out outside my comfort zone of robots and lasers and speculative fiction and saying, you know, actually... Things are magic and things, even if it's in that setting, things can be more than your reality. Like your reality can expand. And so like I think science fantasy is no matter what we define it as, it's a fab- it's, it's a fabulous way for people who are in one or the other modes to cross over. It's their gateway drug. So, I mean, let's push the hell out of it, right? <laughs> <laughs> is there such a purity of definition of what fantasy is? Like are there people out there who say, you know, magic is magic, and we must adhere to the things in the magical realm. And as soon as our potions start having real chemical compounds, <laughs> no longer is this fantasy. <laughs> you know, because uh, it feels like certainly on that end of the spectrum, it's a little more nebulous. Like, it's fantasy until wild machinery shows up or spaceships are involved, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I guess to maintain hardcore fantasy, one has to not explain anything under any sort of scientific pretense whatsoever. The scientific method does not exist in fantasy realms. (laughs) But I feel like that's hard. I mean, so like then take something like Game of Thrones. Like, is that science fantasy? Because you still have like the maesters, which are basically scientists like making chemical potions. So like, is that not pure fantasy anymore? Like... Ultimately, I mean, I think anyone who argues purity is generally kind of a jackass. <laughs> hold, hold on, we're gonna we're gonna piss off half our audience. <laughs> like, I know there's a lot in, in the community. <laughs> there's a lot of very rigorous, specifically minded people who want to have structure and limits. God damn it! Like, you know, we can't say that they're wrong, but yeah, I agree. Like, there there has to be a little give and take. There has to be a little a little magic in their lives to let them expand these boundaries and give up on some of these rules. Unless the sun is a true God to be worshiped. And if any of my characters are walking around on a planet with gravity, that ain't fantasy. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I did find one interesting little snippet of a sentence that I thought was a fair approximation in this very ambiguous soup that we've just taken a bath in. And that is, that science fantasy has to have an explicit reliance on supernatural forces. And I think that's fair because that implies the binding of science and fantasy. That way you can have all the spaceships and dragons you want. The dragons can be genetically engineered dragons, but that there are probably also ghosts. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think that's fair. I, I, I didn't like it at first. There's something about the way you said it. I was like, no, that's wrong. That's my inner pedantic, you know, whatever obsessive thing. But like, no, that's it. That's totally it. I mean, but that's life, right? Maybe, well, maybe that's the question is, are there ghosts? And, and oh, we, that's a question we can, ask, we can ask ourselves in life. Are there ghosts? We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> exactly. It's the unknowable. So in, in, a, in a strict... Or in a, and in therefore, a, life is fantasy. Exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, like, we can only know so much at, at any time in history. So... Yeah, everything has the potential to be fantasy. Just put a big old asterisk on this episode I mean, because we've just broadened it to include all of creation. <laughs> I, I think for most people, it's a gut feeling, right? Yeah. If something just doesn't fit their own personal definition of what is science, what is pure, true science fiction, and doesn't fit their personal definition of what is pure, true fantasy, they'll consider it to be you know, an amalgamation of the two genres. And because the two genres weirdly share so much, because they're both those kind of classic adventure stories, they're two easy genres to marry. It's like pornography. You know it when you see it. That's what I'm hearing. Exactly. It's, got a, it's a sniff test, right? And that's a whole other tangent, I'm sure. Right? I'm, I, I know. Yes. I know it is. I know you know. <laughs> okay, so let's take this moment now to share the science fantasy that's most important to you, whether it was the thing that made you realize, aha, I see there's something different here. You've gotten your chocolate and my peanut butter and I like it. <laughs> Thank you. Matt, why don't we start with you? I mentioned it earlier. It's the example of science fantasy that I was most aware of as a child. And it sort of became my mental template for what science fantasy is ever since. And that is He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Hell yeah. It's such a goofy fusion of all the best parts of both of those things. Yeah, because you've got a guy who just holds a sword in the air and gets a a, a bitch in tan and loses <laughs> half his clothes. That sounds like and a great it, time. And his and his cat turns into a huge cat that he can ride around on. But there's also robot guys with metal jaws. And like man at arms has metal arms and stuff. I think for a child, for a four-year-old like me, it's the easiest way to try to, to kind of understand what science fantasy could be. And it comes very much from what I'll use as my other example, from the mold of like heavy metal, mm. where like the image that I think anybody thinks of when they think of heavy metal, the magazine or heavy metal, the movie is a lady in a leather bikini riding a dragon over a star field. And it's just like, there you go. There's science fantasy. <laughs> so all of my posters from college is what you're saying. <laughs> all right. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> nice. How about you, Jess? Definitely A Wrinkle in Time. I think I first read it in fifth grade, I want to say. But for me, it was it was a little bit different in that I was always interested in the fantasy books. I was always interested in, in magic specifically. And I was interested in science in school, but it was always presented so dry and so in such a boring manner. And I think what A Wrinkle in Time did was it allowed me to see science in a more fantastical light, I guess, of just going through space in order to find her lost scientist dad as a way to kind of pull in thoughts on just regular science that you observe every day here in life. So yeah, I'd say that was that was probably my my most favorite and still remains one of my most favorite. Wrinkle in Time is a really important book in in so many, many ways. Um, I, I also read it in fifth grade and 
one of the things I think I like most about it is that it's how much of a hard science fiction it is, or at least it was in the time period when it was written. Like, it was such a hard science fiction that Madeline Leangle had an extremely hard time getting it published because everyone was like, this is not a children's book, and yet it's also not an adult book, so get the fuck out. Yeah. And what I love about it is that the fantasy element of it comes from the spiritual side of the book and that it has such an important leaning on more tangible earthbound metaphysics than, say, unicorns and actual magic. But it's there alongside some right, hard yeah. hard science math centric characters. They're, they're just, there's, there's parts of they just straight up do math to save their lives. And it's beautiful for it. It's actually my most read book, period, of all books. Yeah. Mine is kind of unusual because I, I mean, I grew up with tons of stuff like Wrinkle in Time and, and Star Wars especially, but I took it all for granted. I do remember the first time that I had a shock to my system from all of a sudden these two things being inexplicably combined. Because, you, you, you know, like even Masters of the Universe, I mean, like I just took it for granted. Ninja Turtles, I, I took it for granted. But Secret of Mana, mm. the Super Nintendo game, it looks like a high fantasy game for almost the entire time. But then there's this one point when you're on a mountain and there's this recording device and it plays part of the Gettysburg Address. And you're like, <laughs> well, that's that's weird. Uh, maybe that's just a fun joke. And then, almost as the game's about to end, you resurrect an ancient island that has a shit ton of impossible technology and a subway system full of zombies. And... As a young person, might must have been 10 at the time, I was like, oh shit, I don't think I'd ever really experienced a bait and switch about the world as you know it was a cool fantasy world, and then, no, it wasn't. Underneath it, mankind must have destroyed itself. We don't know. There's no clues. But here it is. I feel like that is the case with almost every squaresoft rpg of that era yes <laughs> yeah yes <laughs> like like the final fantasy games certainly fall into that category absolutely and some go more science fiction than fantasy like seven and some go more fantasy than science fiction maybe most of the rest of them but <laughs> a game like chrono trigger which i played all the time mm-hmm. that's a game where you can jump on your sp- your your time machine ship and go from a medieval world where a prince turned into a frog to a far-flung future where, you know, you find a robot who becomes your friend. And you also meet a cavewoman and (laughs) you have an inventor friend who invents crazy gadgets. And you save the world from aliens. Yeah, and a demon, (laughs) a literal demon. And that's why it's one of the best games of all time. Oh, it's great. (laughs) So there's a lot of like common themes that I'm hearing and actually mine fit very well. Future Earth that we've lost all sense of technology and it's just kind of gone back to a pastoral sort of primitive state. Nausicaa, of course, Mm. uh, by Miyazaki, both uh, the manga and then the movie later. But from the literature realm, if you like Gene Wolfe, and I know at least Dr. Talos does, there's a couple other authors and works you've got to know that fits squarely in this space. It's Jack Vance's The Dying Earth which is an actual whole like collection of stuff from the 50s up to the 80s. And M. John Harrison's Verconium, both are set in that far distant earth where technology has just disappeared. Because, you know, it's like, you know, the cities get uh, paved over with grass and the animals have run wild and hundreds of thousands of years have passed and no one knows anything anymore. And that seems to then fit into that 
magic because these things just can be, you know, leftovers and they, they have power that nobody understands. And I also want to give an honorable mention to Jay Lake, who is a sci-fi author who just passed away a few years ago. He has a series called the green series that again, it actually touches a little bit, I think on the steampunk, which that was a whole other thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's set in alien world science and some, again, mystical, magical forces. So if you like reading Wrinkle in Time, definitely. But some of these works, I think, are all going to have a very nice familiarity to you if you like that way distant future. Pulling on the steampunk side of things, one of the things that I was thinking about, or I think it fits, but one of my favorite graphic novels from last year was the volume one collection of Monstrous, which is a story about half-human, half-animal hybrids and sort of their war with humans, 100% pure humans. And it's very, very awesome steampunky vibe, uh, lots of weird experimentation that goes on to try to unlock the secret of how these human animals work. Yeah, and that that is very much in the vein of, you know, stuff like Commandy. Yes. Yeah. Which which is also the far-flung future where humanity kind of destroyed itself thing. But I, I also think we'd probably be remiss if we didn't give a little more lip service to Edgar Rice Burroughs and particularly the Barsoom series. Absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, that's that's the true origin point. There's some things that predated it, but that yep. is the heart and soul of science fantasy for sure. Well, and it, it is part of a subgenre of science fantasy where it is a science character, even though in Barsoom he is also a Civil War veteran. But John Carter travels through space to a fantasy land and then sort of has to wrap his earth brain. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Around this fantasy land in Mars. And then that's become a trope and a genre of its own, you know, relating to, to other literature and to comics. Like that's, that's basically the idea of, of like Adam Strange yep. in comics, right? And Flash Gordon. Uh, yeah, Flash Gordon, of course. Which, yeah, Flash Gordon is, there's got to be a direct line from from Princess of Mars to Flash Gordon. I would imagine I, my Alex Raymond is not so hot, but I'm sure there must be. They probably knew each other. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 
some terms I, I encountered that I had not seen before were the terms planetary romance and sword and planet. Have you guys ever heard these? No. Mm. These are like subgenres of science fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and Edgar Rice Burroughs' Mars series is sword and planet because it has that fantasy leaning of the sort of medieval weaponry, swashbuckling, high adventure kind of slant, whereas planetary romance, it's way more amorphous, very ill-defined, but the opportunity for a more modern, well, I guess more modern efficacious that you could set, you could have someone from the modern times doing modern things, but having the sort of exploration of another world, an alien world, learning about the alien cultures and all that, but not being beholden to swashbuckling adventures. See, I was excited. I thought this was like an ego, the living planet thing, you know, like some some awesome <laughs> two, slash fic with the ego and <laughs> two some big lady space balls making out. Exactly. <laughs> huh. So do they have did you see a specific example of that planet romance? I'm almost wondering if there's little bits of that in the expanse. Not that they're exploring alien worlds as much, but certainly cultures that are somewhat foreign to us, like what Mars would turn out to be in the belts and all that. So. Well, uh, there's a little bit of that stranger in a strange land thing going on there, too. Uh, I like my idea with the ego thing, though, honestly. If someone wants to do that and send it to us, I'd really love to. <laughs> well, we will, we will read your ego slash fic, yes. <laughs> there is that one issue of Marvel Adventures Avengers where ego is falling in love with Earth. Oh, uh, yeah. I, think, I think Jeff Parker wrote that. Oh, my God. I got to dig that up. Wow. <laughs> you know, there's going to be a lot of ego stuff coming out soon. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. Planetary romance. Okay, so it bleeds with the sword and planet quite a bit. So the Barsoom books also are of that. Ursula K. Le Guin's uh, Hainish Cycle is on this list. Okay. Pern by Anne McCaffrey. Oh, yeah, of course. Philip Jose Farmer's Riverworld stuff. Interesting. So th- there you go. We actually did a whole episode of Nerdy Show Book Club dedicated to uh, to their Scattered Bodies Go, which is a very complicated, weird piece of science fantasy. Yeah. Yeah, that's very much in the science fantasy, <laughs> but delightfully so. It's like, I mean, it's like a blacklight poster come to life, basically. Like I was saying, like Doctor college. Strange. That was my college. Those are my posters. <laughs> so I guess, speaking of Doctor Strange, any superhero universe is science fantasy by virtue of the fact that Superman can interact with any number of magical characters. And by that same logic, all television and comic book incarnations of Ninja Turtles are also science fantasy. Galactus and the Silver Surfer. Yeah. Because the power cosmic is basically magic. This is the problem. It's a slippery slope. <laughs> Cap would be remiss if we didn't mention, I think, Meridian as well. Um, oh, yeah. The old cross gen comic. Oh. Dear sweet Meridian, may you someday be collected. Yeah. <laughs> so good. If you've never heard of Meridian, it's a cool story about a bunch of flying cities and a girl who can fly. And maybe you can find it for cheap on in Amazon. We'll link to it. But good luck with that. Marvel has the rights and they're not doing reprints right now for some reason. Bastards. We just recently did an interview with Richard Kelly, the writer-director of Donnie Darko. And all of his films are science fantasy. Because Donnie Darko, Southland Tales, and The Box all have a mystical time travel element made manifest in exchange of souls and a weird liquidy substance. Oh, yeah. I never thought about that. That actually ties back to Gene Wolfe, too, because a big conceit of Gene Wolfe stuff. Every time you say Gene Wolfe, I just want to go, Arr! Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, 
part of the story in the Book of the New Sun is this transmigration of souls and astral projection. Mm. And then the one That'll of the characters like from the later series actually projects back to the earlier series and they have this like crossover. Anyway, I have to keep coming back to that because of Dr. Talos, of course, foremost <laughs> in my brain and is getting me actually so amped up. I need to reread that whole series. Uh, that'd be a good book club. I mean, over many, 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 many months. <laughs> we gotta we gotta bring poor book club. We gotta we gotta dust that poor show off. Aww. It's inadvertent hiatus. It's coming back soon. But yeah. Stephen King, his whole connected universe of, of books, there's more leaning towards fantasy, but a certain degree of science fantasy as well. Yeah. And I got a short list of some cartoons. We got Adventure Time, of course. Of course. Gargoyles in a big way by same virtue as Ninja Turtles and all that. And uh Thundercats, sure. And Aww. Samurai Jack. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, actually. I mean, there's a lot of that sort of mythical, honestly, anything mythical, like uh, Clash of the Titans had a component of technology that was manufactured by the gods. So there's a sciencey component. But again, that's the, I feel like the definition is away from us. But yeah, anything that enters into myth and technology. I'm even sitting here wondering if the fantasy and sci-fi Bethesda franchises fall out. <laughs> And Elder Scrolls would both be considered science fantasy because Fallout has basically what amounts to fantasy monsters in the super mutants. Like there's a vaguely scientific explanation (laughs) for how they came to be, but okay. And Elder Scrolls games have a decent amount of technology stuff as you advance through them. Or like a Mass Effect where basically gods are coming out of the sky to, you know, overtake humanity. I think there's eventually a technological explanation for them, though. But That's a good you know, point. Anytime there is a space god of any kind, mm-hmm. by logic of, and therefore Star Trek is science fantasy, then therefore whatever it is is automatically science fantasy. Yeah. I feel like this trope, this genre, is the ultimate transitive genre. Because literally anything kind of, it just progresses the boundary <laughs> further and further out. And so everything <laughs> is subsumed into fi- science fantasy. Yeah, because I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, even things like my own personal obsession, like Sailor Moon could be science fantasy because they fight aliens and go into space and have sophisticated moon technology Yeah, from when the moon kingdom was destroyed. So, yeah. I think a harder thing to do is define things that are definitively not science fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you invent a genre that essentially is there to serve as a catch-all, (laughs) <laughs> for things that are not this and not yeah. that, that's what you end up doing. One last weird note on the topic of science fantasy. Wikipedia included post-apocalyptic stories in science fantasy, so there's fallout there. But it's seemingly, the way it was written, gave a pass to the first two Mad Maxes, but said that Thunderdome and Fury Road were definitively science fantasy. What? Shut the front door. That makes no damn sense. Because <laughs> they're goofier. Yeah, well... <laughs> Is it the band on the truck driving around that makes it science fantasy? That's, <laughs> that's the bridge too far. Yeah, and the children living alone in the wastelands with the, the myths of airplanes. And sure, I mean, I guess I, I, I it might simply be that it, the series evolved more archetypal fantasy plots, but the dressing was science fiction and therefore science fantasy, which is interesting because that's not necessarily context. That's construction. I think the only way to rein this in is if you pull off the science fiction label and go to what science fiction is originally, which is speculative fiction, and then that really is a projection of what, like what Arthur C. Clarke was saying, that's a projection of technology and societal trends going forward Mm. to contrast with today's society. 
if you limit it to that and allow for nothing else of any mystical or unexplainable or anything, maybe that's your little counterexample. That's science fiction. I mean, in that statement, he was basically saying, and I, Arthur C. Clarke, the premier science fiction writer, everything I've ever written was, in fact, science, science fantasy. fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's impossible. I, one more example I want to throw out there would be Judge Dredd, mm. where you have defined geographical this area is science fiction and then out here like mega city one is science fiction the wastes are fantasy (laughs) so (laughs) you've got different locations where science fiction and fantasy stories can both happen within judge dread which is kind of a beautiful thing (laughs) let's talk about everything will be okay give us everything will be okay uh certainly could fall into under the auspices of science fantasy <laughs> because the lead characters get on a spaceship and go into space and live on a space station but also there are giant apes and kaiju monsters because the basic elevator pitch for everything will be okay that i've been using everywhere is what if every possible disaster happened at once And that includes not only the very tangible, real, worrisome disasters that we can think about right now, like a meteor hitting Earth or global warming or nuclear annihilation or any of that kind of stuff, another ice age, potentially, you know, any of that stuff we could worry about. And there's a potentiality of that happening. But at the same time, there are you know, giant monsters around and vampires and zombies all on earth at the same time. <laughs> and, and they are all happening concurrently. The second issue is all about what is taking place on earth. And there's a sequence of the two lead characters, Anya and Edgar, who are this brother and sister pair of engineers who are just trying to escape earth and trying to get to this place where they know that people are putting together a way to get off of earth. And, From there on, they encounter other scenarios where absolutely everything goes wrong. They go into space and everything goes wrong. They go to an alternate dimension and everything goes wrong. And that's the basic idea of the book. I think of it as a satire of disaster fiction and catastrophe fiction where the story is something bad happens and a lead character has to try to escape it. At the same time, it is me trying to deal with and get through my very real fears about things that I have zero control over. And I spend (laughs) so much time thinking about, like global warming. So that's the basic idea of it. It's a very high concept kind of thing. I make the circumstances satirical, but I try to make the characters' reactions to it as real as they can be. Because these things are really happening to these characters. So that's the pitch for it. It's on Kickstarter now. Uh, we've got a few days left to to raise some money to make it happen. You know, some of it will go to printing and rewards and that kind of stuff. Most of that money is going to pay the artists that I'm collaborating with who are absolutely amazing. Rodrigo Vargas, who you mentioned, has done some incredible work already on the art for the series so far. Joe Hunter, who is an incredibly talented artist in his own right is doing colors for the series and uh, Josh Crock, who is a terrific letterer is doing letters. And I would really love for this to get out there because it feels timely in some ways. Cause I feel like those fears have ramped up for me recently for everyone. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, and I had this idea several years ago before any of this current climate happened, but it sort of feels relevant to right now. And it's been an idea that has kind of kicked around in my head for such a long time that I felt like I finally just had to try to do it. So hopefully it is a, a book that can get out there and people can check out because I'm personally proud of it. And I think the art that we're putting together is just stellar. So good. Is the completion of the book contingent on the Kickstarter 100%? Probably. I haven't talked about it very much because I don't, I don't know how it will affect the outcome of the Kickstarter. And I don't want to threaten anything. But <laughs> as with a lot of projects that end up on Kickstarter, you know, this is something I pitched around to, to some publishers. And even though I got very kind responses about it, I got a lot of, well, we've got another project that's kind of similar or... We just can't put it on our publishing list right now or whatever. You know, I kind of come to the decision that if the Kickstarter doesn't manage to hit the goal, that maybe there's not a market for this right now. And maybe there will be eventually. But yeah, I, th I think it'll go on the shelf if the Kickstarter doesn't make it. I hope it does. I but, hope it does too. I mean, at, at this yeah. at this juncture, I would really like somebody to tell me everything will be okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, th I, think I think reading this book would be very cathartic. Seriously. <laughs> well, the, the title is a little bit of a goof. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit of a goof i got a question though it's five issues long yeah and obviously it's a satire of everything you know going catastrophically wrong but one of the first questions that comes to my mind is why is this happening does is that a question that gets answered is like how why well i'll tell you this each issue more or less goes to a different locale or a different kind of world there are two space issues but aside from that each one goes to a different place and in the fifth issue, there's a place that the lead character, Anya, goes to where she has an opportunity to ask any question that she wants. And so there's certainly going to be an opportunity for her to ask those questions. <laughs> I don't know if I'll say if they're going to be answered. Okay. That's Intrigue. Cool. I expected a coy response, but that was, that was more giving than I anticipated, so... <laughs> If you want to back this, you absolutely should back this. The deadline is April 14th, 2017 at noon. And if the series is funded, it'll be released in issues digitally as they're completed with the print collection later down the line. So do it or not, but do it. Of course. <laughs> I want to read this. I think who would not want to know what happens next? After all, the world just falls apart. Right. You, you, just, heard, yeah. you just heard this pitch and you don't want to know what happens? Come on. Come on. Heartless. <laughs> So obviously we'll link to that on this episode's page. We'll also link to where you can support this very program, Nerdy Show, through our Patreon and our Amazon links, all the crap you buy on Amazon, including the various movies, films, television shows, and products mentioned on this episode. If you're going to buy those anyway, support us through our Amazon links, and it will in turn give back to Nerdy Show at no additional cost to you. You can get all of Gene Wolf's stuff up on Amazon. There you go. <laughs> so, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. I hope this is the first of many times that you appear on Nerdy Show. Yeah, I hope so, too. This was super fun. And uh, trying to figure out just what the hell science fantasy is. <laughs> it's going to haunt us all. Hey, was yeah. a, a fun exercise. <laughs> Folks, if you got answers, you know, you know where to put them. That is, well, I guess the comments, the forums, the Reddit, wherever you want. It's all good. Taking Us Out is a track by Those Who Fight, a Final Fantasy concept band. This is the madness of science. So you've got the Final Fantasy and you've got 
science. I don't know actually if it's representative of a narrative from any particular game. I'm going to guess Final Fantasy VI, but it's just a guess. It's from their 2012 EP, The Fall of Bahamut. And I wasn't actually sure if those who fight still existed because I know that they sort of allowed for the creation of the better known band, Descendants of Erdrich, featuring Amanda LaPree, who now recently scored a gig playing guitar with Andrew W.K., this was her much earlier band, but it looks like those who fight might actually still exist. So I don't know, but this is still their lone release, this EP. So once again, taking us out is The Madness of Science by Those Who Fight.
ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 